right. If everyone would just join me for the reading of God's word. It's in your bulletin and it's taken from 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 2. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in this divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For we did not follow clearly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it. As to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning. Peace be with you. It's great to see you again. And if this is your first time, it's especially good to see you. And we're glad you're here. Uh, a couple years ago, there was a book that came out that was uh, fairly entertaining. It was called A Year of Living Biblically. And it was written by a non-Christian, a journalist from New York, a uh, really, really good writer. But he took the Old Testament, he read through it, and he found every law that he could possibly find. is six or 700 different laws. And he said for, for one year, he's going to follow them absolutely to the T. And so he didn't shave his beard for the entire year. Uh, he couldn't wear any clothes, T-shirts, or suits that had mixed fabrics, you know. Uh, he couldn't eat anything that was on the banned list, so all the birds like eagles, hawks, storks, pigeons. I don't know what the temptation was, even in Old Testament times, to eat some of those things. But we eat super weird things, if you actually stop and think about it. Uh, but the book was meant to be sort of a humorous critique of organized religion, and, and, it, and it is. But it raises the question, is that really what the scriptures are for? Uh, it raises the question, how do we know what from the Old Testament is, is still in effect for us and what is, what is no longer in effect for us? Because if we're honest, the questions go a lot deeper than whether or not we can wear clothing with mixed fabric. Uh, there are questions in the Bible that if we don't understand them, if we don't uh, get them right, they affect our lives in a really deep way. And we're in this series, Questioning Christianity. This is our, our third week, and we're, we're facing the question of the Scriptures. In particular, we've re received two, two major questions related to the Bible, and we've received other ones that sort of fit under these two main categories. But the first one is, is the Bible true? Is it historically accurate? Is it reliable? How do we know that this is really an, an accurate book, having been passed down from generation to generation over the course of thousands of years with all the different genres? How can we know that this is historically reliable? 
And the second question, which is also very important, is that how do we know the scriptures are good? And they seem to be uh, regressive in some ways culturally. The, the, uh, there's a reference to slavery in Ephesians that seems to uphold the institution of slavery. And doesn't it support the oppression of women? And so these are questions that are massively important to us as we look to the scriptures. And if you think about it, all the other questions that we're going to look at throughout the remainder of this series, what we're doing is we're pointing you to the scriptures and saying, here's what the Bible says about this. Here's what it says about gender. Here's what it says about science. Here's what it says about all these important topics. And yet, if you don't believe the scriptures or if you don't understand why we as Christians embrace the scriptures, none of that will really connect. And so the question of scripture is an important one for us this morning. I think of it like this, uh, not too long ago, we were driving from Louisville to Columbia is the time that we were moving back home from Louisville. And so we had to make four or five trips over the course of getting ready to move. And so we got really used to the drive. Well, there's this really poorly planned intersection in central Illinois where to stay on the highway, you actually have to get in a single lane and veer off to the right. So if you stay in those two main lanes, you'll actually end up going on a different highway. You end up on 57, which goes to Chicago. So we're doing this drive over and over and over. It's very familiar. Uh, and as I was driving, I wasn't distracted, but you know, it's a road trip. So I'm listening to a podcast and I'm checking my email on my phone. I've got my laptop out to get some work done and I'm making a sandwich. <laughs> and, and it just n sort of naturally happened that we, we, I kept going straight and we drifted far off course. And so it only happened, you know, it only lasted five or 30, maybe 40 minutes before he recognized none of this is familiar and the compass says we're heading north. But it, it's like that to be a Christian and to be wrong about the scriptures. Because at first it seems like such a, a slight difference. What difference does it make if we think the Bible is, is mostly divine, but also full of just some human wisdom, some stuff that we can set aside? At first, it doesn't seem like that big of a difference. But then moments later, a few decisions later, and you discover that you have a Christianity that is now in a, in a totally different place than its own scriptures. And so if, if we can understand the scriptures as they present themselves, if we can understand the, the interpretation of scripture, the reliability of scripture, and especially the authority of scripture, why do we as Christians come underneath the authority of scripture? If we get these questions right as believers, then all the other questions will be easier to answer. And if you're here and, and you're not a Christian or you're still exploring the claims of faith, this is one of the most important places you can begin. Because if the Bible is merely a collection of, of human wisdom, then, then as you're making big decisions in life, you might refer to it as a source. But what we as Christians believe is that we make decisions from the Bible, not merely with the Bible. And we believe that these scriptures give us a, a clear and, and a pointed view of who Christ is and his own view of the scriptures that will change everything we believe about our faith. And so the three big questions for this morning. First, is the Bible true? In other words, is it reliable? Is it accurate? Second, is the Bible good? Can, can we trust its wisdom? Can we trust what it says on tough topics? Is it good? And then third, most importantly, is the Bible actually God's word? And this is the question of authority in our lives. So is it true, is it good, and is it God's word? We'll start with, is it true? Thank you, Chris. I'll go back to kids now. 
often, often when people say that you can't take the Bible literally, you can't t- take the Bible literally, they are probably saying one of a few different things. They might be saying four different things. There are uh, four arguments that I see that people often use when they're saying you can't take the Bible literally. And the first one is that the Bible is so full of miracles and extraordinary events that it couldn't possibly be true historically. The second thing they might be saying is that the Bible is so full of metaphors and and imagery that it's almost impossible to know what to be taken literally and what to be taken metaphorically. The third thing that they might mean when they're saying the scriptures can't be trusted literally is that it's full of contradictions. You've probably heard this. You've probably been taught this throughout life. The Bible's full of contradictions. And the fourth thing that might be in mind when somebody says the Bible can't be trusted literally is that the Bible is unreliable, that its claims can't be supported by good evidence, either inside or outside of the scriptures. Now, I think all four of these uh, claims have some weight, but each one is a little bit stronger than the one before it. So first of all, the the one about uh, miracles. I don't think this is a really strong argument uh, against the the power of the scriptures, because by definition, a miracle is something outside of our normal order of things. And so just like you can't prove that God exists or he doesn't exist, you can't prove that miracles have happened or haven't happened, because by definition, they're something that aren't repeated and they're outside of our normal order of things. Now, second, the question of metaphor, I think, is is interesting because there is so much metaphorical language in the scriptures. But I think you probably already recognize just by your own common sense when you're reading the scriptures that the scriptures are written in a number of different genres. The scriptures is 66 books, but it also contains several different major genres. So there's narrative history. That's the most um, common form of, of scripture, long, long stories of history. There's psalms, which you read a certain way. It's poetry. There are Proverbs, which you read a certain way. There's allegory, which is read a a different way. Uh, There's eyewitness accounts of something that's happened. And then there's personal letters. And then last of all, there's apocalyptic literature, which is full of metaphors and symbolism. And so if you read the scriptures according to their genre, you'll you'll be beginning in a much better place than if you're treating all of the scriptures as if if it's all written in the same genre, which it's not. And again, by common sense, you're already doing this. So when Jesus says, I am the true vine, we don't say, wait a second, is he saying he's a literal vine? It's pretty clear that that's a metaphor and metaphors make connections between an image and between a truth. And yet when Jesus says, on the third day, the son of man will rise. And when he says that over and over and over, and there's no hint of it being a metaphor, then we understand that Jesus was speaking of his own literal physical resurrection. Now, what about the question, the Bible is full of contradictions? I would say this is something that most people in our culture would agree with, even a lot of Christians. And a lot of times when I've heard somebody say the Bible is full of contradictions, I'll ask them, which contradictions do you have in mind? And it's interesting because I think a lot of people that haven't studied the scriptures will say the Bible is full of contradictions, but then on the spot they can't actually think of one of those contradictions. And I don't try to press them too hard on it, but often if they even have explored these things, some of the contradictions that they mention are not the same contradictions that other people are worried about. I mean, there are a few things that people bring up, but there's no one major contradiction that has just baffled people for ages. I think that's significant. And so some of the things that people bring up as contradictions, we can look at really quickly. For example, in Genesis 1 and 2, 
there are two creation accounts, one in Genesis 1 and one in Genesis 2. And the details are not exactly the same, and the way they're presented is not exactly the same. And yet again, if you're reading simply by genre, you'll see that one is a, a chronological explanation of creation, what happened in each day and in the order in which it happened. And then the second one is a very theological view of creation, why God created, what, what the motive is, what, what creation is for. And when you look at these two side by side, and even the fact that there's two of them to begin with, we understand that they're meant to be read in different ways and to, for us to draw different meanings out of them, but there's nothing that actually contradicts in those two chapters. Now, in those early parts of Genesis, God tells Adam not to eat the fruit of the tree or else he will die. And then if you've read Genesis 3, you know he eats the, the fruit and he doesn't die. Isn't that a contradiction? Well, the scriptures say themselves in Romans and in other places that the death that was brought into the world with that sin was a spiritual death. God wasn't promising a, a literal physical death for Adam, but that all who would follow Adam would enter into the world through spiritual death. Now, I think also of in the Gospel of Matthew and the other Gospels, there are different numbers for some of the, the events. And this is, has been something that people have pointed to for a long time. So did Jesus feed 5,000 people with five loaves or was it 4,000 people with seven loaves? There seems to be a contradiction in the two different stories. However, again, if you actually read the stories carefully in the context of the rest of the Gospels, it's clear that one feeding of the masses happened early in his ministry and with a Jewish audience, and the other one happens late in his ministry with a Gentile audience. And the number of loaves that are presented at the end each connect with the culture in a certain way. And so there really shouldn't be a, a contradiction in believing that Jesus could have done a similar miracle more than once. We wouldn't look at him healing somebody's sight or healing somebody's feet as saying, well, did he do did he heal somebody's side or did he heal their feet just by seeing them side by side? You could see Jesus was doing miracles constantly. The last word in John's gospel is that Jesus did so many miracles that they couldn't possibly be written down in a single book. And so we shouldn't struggle with the fact that Jesus could do similar miracles multiple times. In other cases, you may have heard that the God of the Old Testament is a God of anger, but the God of the New Testament is a God of love. And again, I can only think that this statement is coming from somebody who really hasn't read the scriptures. And I think if you asked a Jewish person if their God was a God of anger, I don't think they would say, yep, absolutely. They would say, no, our God is a God of love and of peace. And in the same way, if, if you look at the old laws from the Old Testament, as we did about mixing fabric and what to eat, there seems to be a clear element of, of ceremony there, a ceremonial law, including the sacrifices in the temple that Jesus specifically says that he has fulfilled in his own life. Whereas Jesus is constantly upholding the moral law of the Old Testament, how to live. And so there's no conflict in what of the law has been fulfilled and what remains for us today. Now, the next thing that people might often say is that the Bible is unreliable. Many people, you'll see this in, in religious studies in college, will say the Bible is just a, a collection of stories. It's, it's human wisdom. There's a lot of good in it, but there's also a lot that we have to leave behind, and it's not historically reliable. And so if you look, for, for example, at, at the Gospels, the four accounts of Jesus' life, 
A lot of scholars will, will say that those were written hundreds of years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And they'll say over those hundreds of years that existed as an, as an oral tradition, people were talking about it, but they could also change things in the gospel so that by the time it was finally written down in the fourth century, it reflected people's own social and political viewpoints. Now, I want to suggest a few different things from an author named Richard Bauckham, who's at uh, Cambridge, and he's done the most work of anybody recently, and gives several good reasons why the Gospels of Jesus should be considered accurate and reliable. First of all, he says the timing of the Gospels is far too early to be legend. He shows that the Gospels were not actually written in the fourth century, but they were written between 30 and 60 years after Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven. And even Paul's own letters were written 15 to 30 years after Jesus' ascension. And so what that shows is that these authors were writing in the same lifetime as people who were alive and were eyewitnesses of these accounts. And so it would have been almost impossible to, to pull a quick one on their entire culture to say that all these things happened and to reference so many specific people in the same lifespan that all those people were actually alive. In the same way, the opponents of Christianity would have had far more of an argument unless they actually believe this was written in the lifetime of the same people, and so therefore you can't refute all of it. And so the Gospels were written far too early to be legend, but they're also too counterproductive to be legend. Think about it. If you were establishing your own religion and starting from scratch, and you had this Jesus figure that you wanted to set forth as Lord— there were certain ways you would go about that so that you wouldn't have many uh, criticisms of your own new religion, right? You would want to make it as airtight as possible. Well, think about the fact that in the New Testament, crucifixion is considered a curse. In first century culture, being executed is one thing, but being crucified is a sign of a, cur a cursed human being. So the early Christians should have made up a different form of how Jesus died. In the same way, you can think about the fact that women were the first eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection, and yet women were not allowed to be witnesses in a court of law. And so it should have been written that men were the first eyewitnesses, unless it actually was the women who were the first witnesses. In the same way, there are so many details in the gospel. They're too detailed to be legends. And so the fact that the gospels include the disciples caught 153 fish, why would they include that number so specifically unless they were actually there for the event, if they actually counted the fish themselves, if it made such an impression on them that they couldn't possibly forget it? Ancient literature was not full of details and, and long stories and long conversations in the way that the scriptures are. There's a literary scholar that says that the, the apostles were either telling the truth or they suddenly invented a whole technique of modern, realistic narrative. And so, I know there's a lot there. We, we've talked about the reliability of the scriptures. Whether or not the, the Bible is full of contradictions, whether or not it's unreliable. And what I would suggest is that we have better reasons to believe that the scriptures are reliable and true than, than we don't. I would suggest that the case for the scriptures is far stronger than most people outside the church are willing to admit, and even far stronger than most people in the church realize. 
probably the best book on this if you want to do more reading. It's called Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. Now, is the Bible true? Second, is the Bible good? This is where we start to get more practical and more personal. Is it true that the Bible upholds the institution of slavery? And does the Bible promote the oppression of women? Now, I want to start with the question of women. And I could use an entire day to talk about whether or not the Bible supports the oppression of women. And so we are going to do that, but just not today. We couldn't possibly do that and all the scripture question and still be out of here by 12 o'clock. Kids would be running free from, you know, the kids ministry. Chiefs play at 12 o'clock. And so we're going to split into two messages two weeks from today. We'll talk about gender as presented by the scriptures. But let me give you a two-sentence summary since you're here. Christianity has the highest view of, of women of any world religion or any system of thought. Christianity presents the highest view of womanhood and of manhood of any community or any belief system anywhere in the history of the world. It's actually been Christianity that's been responsible for the, the role of women rising in society for the last hundreds of years, more than anything else, even secular feminism. And so if you feel like those are some big claims, come back in two weeks and we'll talk about them more in more detail. Now, on the question of slavery, we read in Ephesians 6, and the context is Paul writing to the church, and he says to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And he gives examples of how we who are in lower positions submit to others around us. And he says, slaves, obey your masters. Now, I think what's important to realize is that we can't translate slavery in, in the way that it was in, first, in the first century and just assume that there hasn't been 2,000 years of history in between. And to say that the slavery that we have in our minds from the past century in America and the African slave trade was exactly the same as slavery in the first century. The African slave trade was one of the greatest uh, tragedies and atrocities of human history. And yet slavery in the first century and, and what was being described in Jerusalem was, was far different. So, for example, first century slave, slavery was not race-based. So it wasn't one group of people oppressing another group of people, but it was within Jewish culture, within Roman culture, that citizens were, some citizens were slaves and some were owners. Second, in the first century, slaves were not considered the property of their owners. And so therefore, the owners could not do whatever they wanted with their own slaves. They weren't allowed to be violent with them. They couldn't kill them. Slaves were not the properties of their owners, but rather the way it was written was that the time and the skills of the slave were the property of the owner. So the owner could dictate what the person did with their time at work, but could not dictate their entire lives. First century slaves were temporary. They weren't lifetime slaves. And the reason people actually chose to become slaves most of the time in the first century was to actually have steady employment and then to save up enough money to purchase their freedom so that they could move on to the next sort of level in the social structure. So even the fact that slaves could purchase their own freedom once they saved up enough money makes it very different. And if you look at the New Testament and you look at the Old Testament, you actually see that the African slave trade and, and the slavery and the human trafficking that exists in much of our world today, it's completely condemned by the scriptures. Kidnapping, which was at the heart of the African slave trade, it's condemned in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
This slavery was brutally violent, and the Bible condemns violence, and especially murder, as sin. This more recent slavery was race-based, and the New Testament promises eternal life to every tongue, tribe, and nation. And more recent slavery was slavery for life, whereas the New Testament teaches only to be a lifelong slave to Christ, no one else. And if you look at the history, it was actually Christianity that, that provided the ending and the abolition of slavery. It was William Wilberforce in, in Britain, a, a parliament me member who loved the Lord and whose biblical ethics led him to give his entire life to abolishing the slave trade, putting his life on the line and risking it to bring about the end of slavery. And in the 1960s, it was the Christianity of Martin Luther King Jr. that allowed the civil rights movement to happen. He was a Bible-believing, somehow only 26 years old at the time of his uh, beginning speeches, but it was the depth of the Christianity within him that allowed him to persevere and allowed the civil rights movement to take place. And so we believe as Christians with all of our hearts that the Bible is both true and reliable, but also that it's incredibly good. That Christianity has pre presented the world with more good than any other system of thought or any other community in human history. And even people who don't believe in Christianity, even, even most secular scholars, will agree that the, the impact of Christianity on society for good is far better than any other religion or system in history. And now the third question, and the most practical question, is the Bible God's word? The question of authority. And I think there are basically three ways that you can approach the scriptures. The first way is to approach the scriptures as, as merely human wisdom, that these are just a collection of writings. Some of them are good, some of them are not so good, but it's simply just human wisdom. The second option is that you can say that these scriptures are the written down word of God, that these are authoritative, divinely inspired words from God himself. And if we believe, as, as we do as Christians, that God actually spoke these words into existence and then used mankind to write them down to be preserved, if we believe that these are divinely inspired, which we do, if we believe that they're reliable, which we do, if we believe that they're good, which we do, and we believe that they're authoritative, which we do, then everything changes. Again, then it's from the scriptures that we answer all the questions of life, not merely with the scriptures. Now, I do think there's a third option, which says that the Bible is mostly divine. And this is a more nuanced position, and I, I respect it, but it says that, that the scriptures are full of wisdom, full of divine inspiration, but not everything is fully inspired. There are some things that are, are too old, and we can set them aside, but the essentials are good. And while I respect this opinion, I also don't think it, it holds up for very long. And I see at least two problems with it. First of all, that sort of keeps us in the driver's seat. It allows us to be the authority over Scripture to determine what is true, what's divinely inspired, what should hold up for all of time, and then what can actually be set aside. It seems like every single week we come to a point in the question that we're discussing where we recognize we actually have to submit to something far greater and far higher than ourselves. The second, maybe even more significant problem with this mostly divine view is what Jesus himself says about the scriptures. 
And so if Jesus himself was saying most of the scriptures are divinely inspired, that would be one thing. But look at Matthew chapter 5. And his most important teaching on the Christian life and ethics, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is fulfilled. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, why would Jesus be so concerned with with the dotting of the I's and the crossing of the T's, the least strokes of the pen of Scripture? Unless he believed, as, as he did, that these were the words of his own Father. These were divinely inspired, authoritative words from God. When Moses received the Ten Commandments, he went up on a a mountain for 40 days. You may remember the story. For 40 days and 40 nights, he was with God on the mountain. He didn't eat or drink. When he came down, his face was glowing so much, he had to put a veil over it. And he came down with the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone. In Exodus 32 says, The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. And so just think about the way that Jesus interacted with the scriptures throughout his life. Remember when he was 12 years old and he was lost, his parents had left without him in Jerusalem. Where do they find him? But, but in the temple, and he's discussing the scriptures with the religious leaders. And he said, wouldn't you know that I would be found in my father's house? When he began his ministry, he was led out into the desert by the devil. And he was given these temptations at a moment of great weakness and vulnerability. And he responds only three times and all three times he quotes directly from Deuteronomy, saying, God said. At the moment of greatest weakness and vulnerability, his father's words were enough. He quotes the Old Testament as scripture over and over. Even his final words on the cross are taken from the Psalms and other places in the Old Testament. In the same way, Jesus' earliest followers, the ones who walked with him on earth, that, that started the early church, they believed that the scriptures were authoritative in the same way that Jesus had believed and had taught. And Paul wrote the most books of the Bible, and he said this in 2 Timothy 3, All scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And then as we reach the passage that Phoebe read for us already, 2 Peter, I want you to think about Peter, this close friend of Jesus's, the one who is with them night and day for three years, probably Jesus's closest friend on earth. Peter writes in verses three and four, God's divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who has called us. 
He describes the scriptures as God's very great and precious promises. In verse 16, he says that he and the other disciples were eyewitnesses of Jesus' majesty. And what he's referring to is the transfiguration where Peter, James, and John went with Jesus on the mountain and saw him transformed into his glorious presence. And that's why it says, We ourselves heard his voice that came down from heaven, the voice of the Father, when we were with him on the sacred mountain. The voice that said, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And so they taught about Jesus and his words rather than following what they call clearly devised stories. And then verses 19 to 21. Peter gives us this encouragement for all of history. He says, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about through the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But, God, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And Christianity teaches that the scriptures are God's word, that they are authoritative for our lives. And some of you might say, well, isn't that sort of building an argument from the same thing itself? So circular reasoning where the scriptures are arguing for their own authority, but you're arguing from the scriptures. Have you thought about that? This is a big thing in philosophy. So it's saying this is what it says. So therefore it's true because it says so. But in the scriptures, we see both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, this clear witness that the scriptures are authoritative. We see it in the life of Jesus and his teachings as well. We see it in 2,000 years of church history and this entire system of thought in this community throughout all ages that has agreed upon the scriptures that they are divinely inspired and authoritative for us. And I would just add on a personal level, what is the alternative? The alternative is us setting ourselves above Scripture. Being the ones who decide whether or not something is is accurate, whether or not something is good, whether or not something is authoritative in our lives. Do you really want a religion where you are the one making the decisions about what's in and what's out and what's right and what's wrong? In that religion, you are your own God, which if that was me, I don't want that religion. To be a Christian is to accept that there is wisdom higher than us, deeper than us, outside of us, and that that wisdom is true and that it's good because it's the very wisdom of God. And so in closing, how do we approach the scriptures? To live biblically is not just to to grow your facial hair out, to wear clothing without mixed fabrics. To live biblically is to love and to submit to God's word. To view it as as an absolute gift for our lives. Its wisdom is unparalleled. When you look at the Proverbs and the Psalms, when you look at Ecclesiastes and the way it presents the reality of life, it connects with us. It connects with our deepest longings, with our greatest fears, with our greatest hopes. 
Scripture connects with us in a way that nothing else can. It gives us life. It feeds us. It sustains us daily. When I was in college, the very last summer before my senior year, I got to spend that summer in Juneau, Alaska. And I was spending that time wrestling with a lot of major decisions, whether or not to apply to grad school. Jesse and I had been dating for a while, whether or not to keep moving towards marriage. And I remember being so overwhelmed with life in that summer. And I went camping with a group of friends, and we camped on the beach, and Alaska is unbelievable. And so I woke up early in the morning, right as the sun was coming up. I was facing the ocean in front of me, and humpback whales are jumping out of the water. Behind me, you can hear bears and, and elk out in the woods. Above me are the bald eagles that are just flying overhead. I think a centaur ran by at one point. It's in Alaska. If you haven't been there, you don't know. But I remember thinking in that moment, there's no way that a universe this beautiful could have just come about on its own, that, that a universe this wonderful, that human beings this complex that any of this could, could exist apart from a good and loving God. There's just no way that this beauty and this glory in creation could exist apart from a good and all-powerful and all-loving God. And yet I remember realizing in that moment that if I really believed that, I really was spending hardly any time with God himself. And I was barely even reading his scriptures, hardly at all. I never even read the Bible cover to cover at that point. And I remember that morning getting out my Bible and a journal, and it was like Genesis 1 in the first page of the journal. But I just committed myself to reading a chapter of Scripture and taking some notes and writing out prayers. And so now 14 years later, that's what I've been doing pretty much every single day. It doesn't take that much time. It's not that hard. It's actually incredibly therapeutic to read the Scriptures to write out what's on your mind, to write out prayers to the Father. What I've found in God's word is a, a ballast for my soul, a, a weight that keeps me down when everything seems to be blowing away. And I felt his spirit and his presence in both a real way and a consistent way. It's not like totally hit or miss that sometimes God shows up and sometimes he doesn't. There are drier days than others, but God is consistent in feeding us through his word. And are there things that challenge me, things that I would write differently, things that I would love to be said a different way in the scriptures because it would make my life easier? Absolutely. But again, I, I read and I see that these are words of life. And finally, I remember when I had just become a pastor, and we were living in, in Louisville. I got a text message really early one morning. And it was uh, a couple in our church, and the text message said that their son had passed away overnight. And so they asked me to come over and be with them and pray with them. And so I'm maybe 28 years old, never done something like this, totally overwhelmed. So I go over there, sit with them, cry with them, and over the course of a couple hours, family members, friends, and neighbors had gotten the news, and they were coming over to sit with them as well. 
And at the end of the time, when the family was, was ready to sort of dismiss all of the guests, they asked me to, to say a prayer or read some scripture, and I, I didn't have my Bible with me. But because of the, the power of God's word and, and how good God was to meet us all in that moment, I was able to remember and to recall the words of Psalm 46. God is our ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her at break of day. The earth rages and kingdoms fall. The Lord lifts his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in all the earth. I will be exalted among the nations. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress.